Hello, listeners, and welcome to 33.3 FM. And today, Frank is dead. Long live the Frank. This is Australians only. No Americans here. We are broadcasting entirely from the land down under. So for all listeners who are in the Northern Hemisphere, because we are no longer compensating for the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere disparity, I would ask all the listeners to really enjoy it as it's meant to be enjoyed, to get the closest experience to how this is recorded Please turn your speakers or your earphones, whatever you're listening to, please turn it upside down. So we have a old friend of the show, the occultist and scholar of the occult, Ben. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's great to be here again. Uh, it might just be the Ketterman talking, but I love what you've done with the place. You need, a, you need to have the Ketterman to really appreciate my design. It's... It's a, a bit of a hard sell, I know, with interior decorating companies, but I think that ketamine vented into rooms is going to really revolutionize the architecture industry. But it's not just Ben. No, 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 no. We also have another. Because if it was just me and Ben, this would be, it wouldn't be Australians talk about unknown armies. It would be people in Victoria talk about unknown armies. And that's, that's, that's just no good. So we have someone from the far north, from Queensland. That's right. This is a conscience, uh, interstate diplomat, expert, satellite technician, bringing the upside-down audio waves to your feeble northern hemisphere ears. Uh, I also am a big fan of the smoke ketamine idea. Uh, I'm, uh, I feel as though I'm going to lose consciousness at any moment, but that's also how I feel listening to your broadcast most of the time as well. So I think it's going to work really well yeah i'm i'm a big fan of the the marker drawn sign over the vent that just says k-hole <laughs> that's actually where the karens come in but we, it, it's it's multi-purpose oh you guys have karens up in this that's great and we we don't have those where i come from in the far north it was a curse originally someone passed a curse into into our recording studio to fill us with karens but then we discovered that we can monetize it. Apparently, Karens are um, quite valuable in terms of uh, ritual components in certain forms of um, post-voodoo. Oh, interesting, interesting. Is that uh, a single-use component, or, or can you extract the Karen juice again and again? <laughs> it's mostly the tongues. The tongues are apparently uh, very valuable. I see. That's yeah. That's It's hard to get them to grow those back, but... um. I know a guy who works with crocodiles up here. He might be able to help you. That's why we also have the D-hole. So this is an isn't an entirely misogynistic joke because we also have the Darrens come in. So we are here to discuss more on the country known as Australia. The Australian question. The Australian question and the Australian answers. Uh, there's more than one answer because for a long time I have been a staunch advocate of... Anonami's doesn't have to be set in the U.S., even though it often should be. It's often good set in the U.S., but Anonami's is a it's a big world, a big universe, and also it's true, 100% of it, except what the feds are lying about. 
So why not set a campaign in Australia? And we talked about it before, me, Ben, and that other guy. But in the last few months, I've been thinking about things, learning more things, learning more information from the occult underground on this sunburnt country, as they annoyingly call it sometimes in our commercials. And I've discovered Australia is a bit like the, like the opening scene to Blue Velvet in where it's like a really nice, like a bucolic suburban setting. And then the screen, and then the camera fades down and there's just this like human ear and like bugs and like horrible shit growing just below the surface. Australia is like that. I think, what do you guys think? I don't know where you're getting bucolic from, to be honest. I don't think there's that much for the camera to linger on before it pans down. <laughs> I mean, part of that is just Queensland being a arid wasteland. Yeah, I admit uh, my experience of Australia is probably going to be more negatively coloured than... Uh... What do you mean arid wasteland? It's humid in Queensland. <laughs> yeah, well, there's well, no, we got both. If you're on the coast, you get the lovely humidity and mosquitoes and and what have you, swamp water and such, and then you go 10 kilometers inland. Oh, that's 5,000 miles for Americans. Uh, and you burn to death, and you instantly lose all of the water in your body and die. Right. You just see people walking around audibly crackling under the sun's rays. Um, I've lived in both areas, and I do have to say, I've never seen as much roadkill as when I moved back to Victoria. I wonder what that's all about. That's for an American audience, or even like uh, because we have like lots of um, people around the world and throughout the galaxies listening to this podcast. But often America is the best point of reference. Like Queensland is a big place, um, and I'd want to say it's like Florida, but no, it's not because it's a lot bigger. And there's more to it. But what was, what would you compare it to? I think I would compare it to Florida if I'd been to Florida. Uh, it, it certainly culturally it has certain comparisons to Florida. Uh, uh, the southeast, yeah. I'd yeah. compare the southeast to Florida. That's where most Queenslanders you're going to meet have been, since that's where we've got Bris, Brisbane, Brisbane, uh, and Australia likes to put everybody in the cities because the rest of it is pretty uninhabitable. Um. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I, I I couldn't tell you that much about the northern reaches or where you would compare them. And making comparisons to the United States is very difficult because I've never been to the United States. Yeah, but we we've all been to the United States in our in our brains in our in That's our true. hearts. The United States, I know that place. It's the land where TV comes from. <laughs> this is how I felt like the only time I've been on like American soil or American property was on a US military base in Seoul in South Korea and it was the big this big one in Yongsan military base in the middle of Seoul and it freaked the hell out of me because as soon as I'm in there like it like the the street signs and everything is meant to look like as much like home as it can it probably isn't from an American point of view they might have been missing some things but to me, it was just like, "Wow, I'm on T. I'm in. I'm in the TV land." <laughs> I don't know if you went over this in the last podcast. I know you talked about cultural cringe and such in the last uh, Australian episode uh, when you managed to get a word in edgeways past Frank. Um, but uh, did you talk about how, with television magic and broadcast magic and such in unknown armies, how that could potentially 
sort of be translated to a kind of American occult colonization of Australia? I mean, it could, but you'd also be looking at how, for me at least, and I think for a lot of people, like growing up, I one thing I find is different when I talk to Americans is I'll be familiar with like some of their stuff, but like they'll not be like because like watching both like the ABC and other things you'll be like I was exposed to a lot of like weird British stuff as well as American stuff and like the the scatterings of like Australian like cultural offerings like um Bluey like what nothing it's I, even I, too young for me really but like I was thinking bananas in pajamas um yeah. uh, the ferals the ferals is a good one what else? What else? What else was there? Fuck all. I hated play school. Uh, maybe like some of those big 90s Australian comedies. I don't know if those translated over. Like, um, what do you have? Crackerjack. What's the... Uh, I, I always get it mixed up with... Now that you've said The Man in the High Castle, I get it mixed up. Um, ah, yes. The reference that, we met, that Ben made before we started recording. Right, yes. Well... It's ruined my comprehension. One thing that to me demonstrates just how deeply U.S. is in our TV is that I kind of struggle to tell the difference between U.S. and Australian productions, or at least in terms of acting. Like, I can... I'm always surprised to find out that any given actor is Australian because they all just feel American to me. Well, that, ha- that, that happens a lot when they because the onus is usually on Australian actors who want to make it in Hollywood to, to get a good... American accent and that like the guy who's the guy in the boys who plays Homelander yeah that guy especially surprised me I thought he was British I really thought he was British Carl something Carl Urban Carl Urban that's him no 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 no. oh we see Australia too no I wasn't thinking no the guy who plays Homelander is also Australian wait that oh. guy's Australian yeah, holy no shit he's very no, yeah. Australian so the lead and the lead antagonist are both Australian I did not know that I guess that's what you get for making a show called The Boys. Well, if it was The Cunts, then it would be mostly Australian. <laughs> okay, that all right. would L- be an interesting parody of something that is already a parody and deconstruction. The layers of irony. That's something that Australians are good at. The the, the send-up, the... What do we call it? We have a special word for it. Like, are we good at it, though? Are we? Well, it's something that we like to do. Yeah, it's we don't true. have to be good at it to just yeah. enjoy it. On its own yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, you can't really say that Australians are, are bad at anything because we're not good at anything. Where where do we start with Australia's strong points? Okay, my problem is I have this theory about <coughs> the the national like the national Kool-Aid of countries, because most people often, even if they're not super nationalistic, will drink some of their national Kool-Aid. And usually the national Kool-Aid national Kool-Aid is flavoured with bullshit that doesn't exist in the country like for example americans will go on about how they are free free all the time free 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 and yet they cannot eat they cannot buy haggis and they can't drink unpasteurized milk and there's like a million laws and it's like half most like there's more people in prison than any other developed nation and there's all these things that are very unfree canadians on the other hand will say that they're nice when they're dicks australia often goes on about how laid back we are and how we're all, we're all about a fair go. Everyone should get a fair go. And being back in Australia from being overseas for a year, for years and years, and being back in Australia for a year, 
Australians do not seem laid back at all. Australians are really pissed off all the time and aggro. And uh, part of that might be the past couple of years. Yeah, you're getting us at a bad time. Everybody's sure. got cabin fever, and we're all looking for someone to blame and scratch the eyes out of. Like, if you compare it to America, I don't think we're at that level of social mistrust and anger. I, but when I'm thinking about the fair go issue... Like I we think, think we about- are, it's just more muted. Well, then surely that's an example of, of people being at least comparatively laid back. That's the, the fair go is bullshit, though. Like, that is just utter... It, it's utter bullshit, and it always has been. Like, oh, you yeah. Know. I'm thinking in particular of the fact that the Australian government has been putting posters up in countries like Afghanistan and Syria that says in the local language, no, you will not, you will not make Australia home as part yes. of a way to, like, get rid of refugees or stop refugees, even though... And how our refugee policy over the last 20 years has been horrendous and has not achieved what it was meant to achieve which was or it didn't achieve anything at all except torturing people on tropical islands and yet we say oh we're we're cool we're we're the cool fun guys we're not like those americans who are mean it's like no we're well, I'm terrible sure americans have never heard the australian national anthem but we're supposed to have boundless planes to share according to ourselves so that was a fucking lie i mean we have them it's just you don't want to go there. <laughs> then they're not. They're not to share. There's no. There's no fucking good bike lanes in these boundless lands. I've noticed. Well, there are, but they stop randomly for no reason, and all the drivers yell at you. This country is weird. They yell at Brisbane's. Me. Brisbane's pretty good for that sort of thing. I have heard tell but, actually. I've heard tell of that. And there, there's a lot of issues in Brisbane, but there is decent public infrastructure in that department. Yeah. I do remember that being the case. Um, it gets very spotty once you're out of the city, though. Yes, it's a it's got a real, real sprawl issue. You you have no reason to leave the city except to go to your house. So you just want to have a route from your house to like the five big buildings in Brisbane, and that's your life. Right. You just got all these people staring at you, wall-eyed, going, "Why would anyone ever leave?" Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of weird. It does sort of cause the development of a very particular kind of cityscape. Um, it's not unique to Australia because I know in some parts of the American Southwest they have this sort of cities that just like this, like the sprawl that just that you can't go from like the north to the northeast easily, but everyone can go to the center and then out again, and it's annoying. Yeah, I think there are a lot of comparisons to be made there with certain u.s cities if we're talking about comparisons to the northern hemisphere one that uh in a vampire game i've been running recently in birmingham as i've been doing research for that i've been discovering more and more and more that that there are other brisbans in this world nestled away as second cities and third cities in other northern hemisphere countries and birmingham really seems like one of them birmingham alabama i assume no, no, Birmingham, UK. Oh, that one. Okay. All right, all right. I got confused. I thought you were talking about the US. But yes, that makes sense. One thing I've heard, and Thompson, you might be able to confirm this as a as an agent of the interior, is that in the fictional land of Western Australia, one of the things that they do with city planning around Perth is they build what are called lunchbox suburbs, in which each sectioned area is self-sufficient in some way. Like it has all the 
yeah. utilities. It has your hospital. It has your school. It has your where you might go to buy groceries. Um, I wonder how what, whether that's actually the case, how that compares to what it's like on the East Coast. I remember that from living, I didn't normally live in like those areas, but I did a couple of times and they are miserable. Like, but they are like that. Yeah, they're meant to be self-sufficient, but they're suburbia. Um, where I'm living now is kind of like that in a way in Melton, but I think I like it more. But the only reason I like it more is that there's a, a larger immigrant population. So there are like Indian supermarkets and, and Asian supermarkets, which means that I have all the, all the things I need. But if it, there wasn't for that, I would just be like, this is a terrible place. I hate this lunchbox. Well, that's one thing that, that uh, some Australians, not all, but some Australians take pride in that I think is to some extent true is the kind of multiculturalism that we have. There is, there is almost always like a very interesting blend of cuisine and people wherever you go, at least in, in Queensland, well, in Brisbane, in the cities, in, not outside the cities at all, but in the cities. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely a hard border for that sort of thing. It's interesting you talk about lunchbox suburbs. I've never heard that term before, but I actually often imagine what would happen if, like, not in terms of trade, but geographically somehow my whole local area was somehow removed from the city on like a, a floating island or something oh. like like a like an under the dome type situation yeah something like that and like, like food can get in or, or whatever because we don't farm here but you, no no people can move through or anything like that oh right okay because under the dome is one way of doing it you could also do it as an island in the sea of time situation right that's what i think of what time period are you going to send are you going to send your place to <laughs> I, I I haven't thought it through that much, but I, I I just sort of ever since I played Disco Elysium, I guess I sort of imagine this like neighborhood at the end of the world, and I think that Australian cities are, are probably good for that because of this precise phenomenon, which I had never thought I had never like given a name to, but I think that's exactly what it is—a lunchbox suburb. And remember, if you go back, if you send uh, like a, a small Australian city or Australian area back in at a lunchbox suburb back in time, you've got a lot of choices because you've got 40,000 years of history in which you can steal Aboriginals land from them. Colonism too, baby. <laughs> back to the future. Note, notes for Twitter. I don't, this is not a good thing. We're not saying it's a good thing. <laughs> right. But then the British show up in. 1778 the locals all have firearms already that's true oh cool do you think we can play avatar and be like white saviors and stuff that sounds like fun that sounds that sounds good definitely definitely not problematic i don't think i would say well, i mean it depends upon what the cultural and um what sort of population is there by the time that that period rolls around because it's yeah. definitely not going to look anything like a culture that we have yeah today yeah, even yeah. even if it's if you just, just like, got if you've got like a small suburb of people that are just dropped in the middle of ancient australia yeah it's no, it's not right. going to be them colonizing the whole country it'll be them being subsumed yes and also there's the question of like how much could they actually maintain like australia has no industry anymore so you send the suburb back in time <laughs> what how how many said it's not going to survive more than like a couple of decades before it just becomes interesting ruins 
I mean, we are talking about people that have access to tools, people who have access to perhaps Tradies not. in the sea of time? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got people that will have some knowledge that will be able to be reverse engineered, perhaps not to the degree that they would need it to be to get by, but... Uh, Actually, maybe even more than the technology. Like, some of it, they, yeah, you're right, they would be able to maintain some of it, but even just the stuff that people have, like, in gardens and things like all these plants would just start spreading and then suddenly be like maybe someone has some potatoes growing there weren't potatoes in australia yeah. and like all like, this sort of thing hey we don't actually know how to farm but we have these small garden patches and the concept of wide-scale agriculture yeah that's something that could definitely change history in terms of just the introduction of those concepts to uh, yeah i mean there is people. there is some Evidence that uh, things like um, what are those bush potatoes called? I don't know. Uh, bush potatoes. That's with why. Whatever they are, there is evidence of farming pre-colonial Australia, but um, it's not widespread. My understanding of how it is is like when agriculture sets off, usually it to go from being hunter gatherers or nomadic to going to be fully fully agricultural, you need like a particular a certain crop which is so drop dead easy really simple to like plant and it creates enough calories to be worth your while and right. then once you use that as your base then you can start messing around with other stuff but that yeah. sort of crop didn't exist in australia what it did exist in the middle east and it did exist in mexico so just having potatoes and, and like and corn and things would change things a lot even if that civilization if the suburb civilization collapsed very quickly the potatoes would survive and that would probably cause the aboriginals to settle like to settle and create an agricultural civilization just because they now have potatoes that's a good thing to bring to the next corkboard just a photo of some potatoes but uh, let me ask you if we wanted to try to take this concept to the theoretical focus of our secret broadcast here uh, how prevalent is time travel in the simulation of the unknown armies I mean, theoretically, it's not really a touched-on subject, so you can do more or less whatever you like um, within, of course, the bounds of being able to simulate it. Uh, right. Time travel can be a touchy subject in RPGs. If, if we go down mm. that rabbit hole, we'll be here all night. I've, I've played with it, and the way I like to think about doing it is in Anunami's, they have there are other spaces which are like pocket universes that can be made with magic you could design them how you want um and i like the idea of like pocket like these other spaces which are just like um, a particular time period or like maybe even not it doesn't necessarily have to be that time period it could just be someone's memory of that time period or like a borderized right. version of it or whatever you could totally play with like the bastardized like ideas of how history was yes and you can steamroll over all the usual concerns about historical accuracy and such because it's unknown armies and it's how people remember it i mean that's what it's going to be like in, in, in any rpg that which you run a historical game i mean that's yes. inescapable but like you know like in if you look at ars magica or something like that there's a lot of emphasis on trying to trying to get into the the, the theoretical real history I was sort of thinking about if you go to certain time periods, how that interacts with the whole 
This, Transcendence. This, and this is why people don't really do time travel on an army is because it opens up cans of worms. Like, right. what happens to the archetypes? Like, do they know you're doing it? Um, right. The, how does the metaphysics work? But we do know in third edition, it is made clear that there are people called Neverwent people who are apparently from other timelines where things went differently. And they appear and then they survive for a while. The universe tries to kill them because they're in the wrong timeline. And I like them because I like alternate timelines, but I dislike them because I don't know how they work in terms of the metaphysics of how the game... I don't know. How does it make sense? That sounds interesting, getting transported to a time period in in ancient Australia where it's not just the regular level of Australian wildlife trying to kill you. It's like an animated force, a sentient force of Australian wildlife trying to kill you because you're wrong. I mean, that does fit quite well with the local mythology. But um, the other thing is you don't really have to worry about it too much because the high-level metaphysics of Unknown Armies, they don't really matter unless you want them to. That is right. I get that that's a, that's a running theme of the game. It would be nice to have, like, an other space designed, like, based on, like, when, sometimes when Americans will be like, oh, my God, Australia is so full of poisonous things. I never go to Australia like a person who's like their image of Australia, like an American person who's never been to Australia's like mental picture of what Australia is like as an other space would be an interesting place to be. When you guys were, I was listening back to the Olmec and the Deep State episode and other spaces were brought up there. And what immediately jumped to my mind was like, in terms of what I think of, when I think of an Australian other space is those those little towns on the highways, at least in Queensland, you have like when you're driving a long, long distance, um, you know, inland, but not too far inland. And you come across these, these like villages that are just, they just seem completely empty. You, you know, there's a couple of houses and a couple of little services. And then, it's just like nothingness and there's there's nothing but empty land all around it and i always found those places kind of disconcerting well that is something that american listeners would like relate to because those sort of places do exist in america in some parts of the u.s as well and probably like places elsewhere too like big countries like russia are going to have those kind of like why is this town even here thing yeah Um, yeah Plus, it's permeated the uh, the cultural consciousness in the form of uh, horror movie tropes. Things like The Hills Have Eyes. Um, right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wrong Turn. Yeah, the Wrong Turn series. And a lot of like Australian horror movies have that sort of setting as well, don't they? Did, um, what's that, Creek? Oh, yeah, Wolf Creek. Yeah, Wolf Creek. W- was there a village in Wolf Creek? Um, like a township? I, it it might have been like a mining camp or mining town or something um right. but that guy the antagonist in that movie he actually used to host play school <laughs> the children's educational show but like I little never knew that. little preschool kids play school is something you can have fun with if you run an australian unknown armies game for australians that's something where like every australian kid has seen an incarnation of play school because it's been running for so long everyone has an idea of what play school is that's something you could really play with with other australians for a kind of horrific 
angle, you know. Well, lots of kids, like um, television characters, especially puppets, can be terrifying very easily if you just reinterpret them. Right. It's the whole fear of the clown thing. Yes. Uh, It may be even more effective in Australia because TV was so condensed here for so long that you have... I guess it's probably the same in America, but it feels like with, um, with the states being so so broad you have a lot more touchstones from childhood whereas we have a few specific ones that everybody knows right we had like what five different television stations that had various local branches and then you might have a local access depending on where you were i think that was more common in the u.s earlier when like tv was more like um regional but it became more national like more it became standardized earlier in history while in australia because australia is just basically it's hard to compare america to uh, australia australia to america rather when it's like it's easy to compare like australia to texas similar size yes yes but uh, we're always sort of behind with everything really uh no matter which state you compare us to oh it's it's like like we're finally getting our, our our donald trump phenomenon with um What's his name? Palmer? Clive Palmer. Clive Palmer predates Trump, doesn't he? Yeah, but the, the phenomenon now, with all these billboards everywhere, these like weird... I haven't like, seen any Palmer advertising. Oh, Is he it's doing all well? Over, it's all over Melbourne. Like, the big, like over the Westgate Bridge, is, is like, I saw a big... What, what did it say? It said something along the lines of, like, if vaccinations don't protect you, why do we still have lockdown? Or something like that. It was all this weird, like, um, QAnon bullshit. And anti-vaxxer oh, stuff on political billboards, and I'm like, "Wow, okay, it's going that way, are we?" And it's very it, obvious. Is this the uh, the United Australia Party thing? Oh yes, yeah. I keep seeing their ads on YouTube. Yep, I, I noticed the ads first, and then I started noticing the billboards. And apparently, yeah. they're the largest. They're they're now by membership. They're the largest party in Australia, which doesn't mean much, but in terms of like actual members, because who the fuck's an actual member of the Liberal Party? Or the Labour Party. Not that many people. Well, still. I mean, it, it depends on, you know, whether you need to stack your branch or not. That's surprising to me. I, I really haven't seen anything from the United Australian Party since the last election, really. The last federal election. Maybe uh, maybe it's a he, thing he, just in Victoria. Well, he might be Victoria hitting Victoria focused. because of um, the, what's happening with all the protests against... And like how the media has been blaming Dan Andrews for everything. And right. the, the protests have been getting wacky. Um, the protests I had two days ago um, in the middle of Melbourne and um, Clive Palmer spoke at the protest and there was a performance by a woman. It was like she did like a, a, a singing performance, but before her song, she said, I dedicate this song to all the victims of satanic ritual abuse. <laughs> that does not surprise me. And the thing is... The original bill that they were protesting in this most recent spate of the many ongoing protests was pretty egregious in the lack of parliamentary oversight they had in declaring pandemics and so on. Yeah, that's fair. And that's fair. But I, yeah, I think that Dan Andrews definitely needs to be criticized. And Dan Andrews is the Victorian Premier for people who don't know this. And you shouldn't know this if you're not in Australia or even in Victoria. But people are angry at him because he's passing a bill about a pandem- about pandemic. What is it? Um, declaring pandemics. They're also just angry at him for a lot of things that are unrelated. But yeah, basically, it gives 
it gives a lot of powers that just don't have any oversight to a handful of people. But yeah, there's also a lot of people who are just jumping on it because they're angry at him about the various lockdowns that we've had to endure in general. My solution to the problem of public anger, I don't think anyone's going to listen to my solution, but my solution would be, because he does these press conferences and he's, he's clearly trying to give press conferences and let the people public know what's going on, but the media is just not helping. But what he should do, every press conference, somewhere he should allow someone from the crowd to come up and just slap him across the face, just one big slap across the face, and then go back and sit down. His approval rating would go up. <laughs> you think there should be there should be a like a kid standing there with a carton of eggs, a ceremonial egg boy? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because sometimes we just need to get the public needs to get its anger out, and that's all we need. It's like, okay, Dan Andrews is taking the slap. He's taking the slap like a champ. Still pissed off, but he's taking the slap like a champ. All right, all right. He's There's all right. <laughs> Wasn't the Australian Federal Police founded in response to a prime minister getting egged? Uh, it was in response to something like that, yes. Because the state police in, I think it was New South Wales, declined to take responsibility for the protection of the Australian Prime Minister, at least. I don't know whether that applied to other federal members of Parliament, but it was at least that. Right. Prime Minister's not our problem. (laughs) That was the attitude. That's pretty funny. That's something you talked about in uh, the other Australian episode, how Australian politics are much more accessible to the, the average person Australian politicians are than in America. You can feasibly have any kind of unknown armies game easily get involved in even federal politics oh yeah without it seeming too outlandish that's that's true and like australia is a good place you could do that new zealand even more so i would say um because just into our day and the premise of new zealand is just super easy to con- like to get contact yeah um, it, it right. very much is that simpsons episode where <laughs> i'm gonna take this to the member of parliament and it's some guy in a, in a tube outside the window. I'm learning more about just how like kind of fucked Australia is because I've always sort of been more left-leaning and like not really liking Labour very much, but being like, well, but fuck the coalition. I hate the coalition, so I guess I'll vote Labour or the Greens. But now I... And like I'm a big fan of watching those Friendly Geordies videos, and he's a big Labour guy. But now, over time, I'm realizing how, like, the Labour is just, um, they're also as corrupt, but they're the corrupt for tradies in the way that the Liberals are corrupt for the finance industry, and they both feed off each other, and it's all really fucked, yeah. and th- there's no one to, and that's just why Clive Palmer's doing so well, because he's like, no, fuck them both, and I mean, that's an easy thing to say, but it's also true. Well, we just had our, uh, Labour Party Premier have to step down here in Queensland for, uh, a corruption case. Wait, we've, we've lost another Premier? <laughs> Premiers are falling, dropping like flies! Because for those of you who are listening who don't understand this, we've also recently had the New South Wales Premier step down over corruption issues. Yeah. It's cl- it seems like any Australian politician is up for grabs. I mean, Palaszczuk wasn't, like, it wasn't a, a money thing. She made concessions for her boyfriend. She, like, it allowed some kind of zoning thing or some deal to go through. Wasn't that similar to what brought Berejiklian down? Yeah, like her that's, boyfriend as well. That's pretty what much is everyone's the same? boyfriend getting them in trouble. Man, uh, wait, hang on. Oh man, I, maybe I, I have actually completely mixed up the story. 
Um, I know that in New South Wales, it was because, um, well, it was because of a lot of different zoning things, but there was also an instance in which, and I could be getting this wrong because I'm sort of reaching back a bit, New South Wales Premier's boyfriend had bought up a bunch of land where a highway was going to be developed, and then when that was acquired, he got a bunch of money. There was also issues with um, things in his electorate being favoured. You're right. I was thinking of New South Wales. Okay, good. I was. Damn. Yeah. I was thinking there might be common narrative <laughs> for a minute there. Yeah. And I was wondering when um, that was going to come down to Victoria. Now, speaking of dodginess and um, tradies, do you guys want to hear about Red Rooster? We'll talk about Red Rooster. Oh yeah, I used to live across the road from one. Yes. Now, conscience, you mentioned that you've never been in a Red Rooster. No. And you've never had Red Rooster. No. You have not missed much. Ben, you've had okay. Red Rooster, I assume. Yeah. What you're describing is pretty accurate. It's not great. I just had it. I, I The first time I've had it in over a decade. For this, for this episode, I rode to the local Red Rooster. Now, what is Red Rooster? We should explain it for the audience. It is what it sounds like. It is a fast food chicken restaurant. It was founded in 1972 in Tuart Hill in uh, Western Australia. So it may not exist. It may be just a psyop but that's where it came from it uh, no it first opened in 1971 and uh, closed after a year because it was uh just didn't do well and then opened again in 1972 and it expanded um out of the perth suburb of kelmscott and its main rival was a place called chicken treat which was exactly what it sounds like a boring roasted like roast like barbecue chicken Restaurant. Now, I believe in the 70s, there wasn't much to choose from in Australia in terms of fast food. I don't, KFC hadn't come out here yet. I don't even think, I think McDonald's might have. I know, like, uh, we don't have Burger King. Hungry Jack's wasn't here yet. Um, so Red Rooster, with its barbecue chicken meals, did quite well. And they uh, eventually was bought by Meyer, which became Coles Meyer, the big supermarket department store chain, and expanded into the eastern states. Except... Except into Queensland, where there was Big Rooster instead, but they were purchased in 1992 and renamed Red Rooster. Um, and Red Rooster is just a really sort of boring fast food restaurant. Um, and it's kind of embarrassing. They did an embarrassing uh, ad campaign in 2009 with the comedian Tom Gleason called um, They Don't Get It in America, where he went around New York asking people if they'd heard about Red Rooster. And of course, they hadn't heard of Red Rooster, and he'd look at the camera and say, they just don't get it in America. And watching it embarrassed me and made me angry. But this is the sort of thing we're dealing with. However, more recently, people have people on Reddit have came up with this... Um, well, they started talking about the fact that whenever anyone goes into a Red Rooster, it is empty. There's no one there. It's just an empty place. And I'd heard this, and it was funny... Much. I thought it was an interesting theory, but just earlier, I went to the local Red Rooster, uh, which was a, which is right next to a Nando's, and of course, I'd always just rather go to the Nando's, even though Nando's isn't as good as it used to be, but I went in there, it was completely empty, and yet they were busy behind, they were busy, they were making lots of chicken behind, they were, they were doing things. But the girl comes out, and I'm used to bored, unenthusiastic Zoomers serving me. But it was she was she was almost surprised and offended that I was there, 
And she was like, what do you want? And I'm like, uh, I guess I'll have the, I'll have this meal. And she's like, all right. Um, but it, it was a weird attitude. Like I'm used to just, I'm used to, obviously fast food workers not giving a shit. That's fine. I respect it. But it was, it was something more to it. She was, you, I don't know. There was you, a weird vibe. You know why she was annoyed? Because you aren't one of her normal customers, the paid actors from Perth. Ah, yes. yes. This very, very clearly feeds in to Ben's uh, PSYOP research on Western Australia. Uh, the fact that uh, the fast food chain out of the fake city has nobody in it at any given time, just people pantomiming the making of horrible fast food chicken. Well, that all just lines up too neatly, doesn't it? Yeah, pinpricks in the veil. It could be. It could be. And I am an unpaid actor from Perth, well, from the Perth area, so that must be it. But the main theory that people say on Reddit is that <clears throat> it is actually just a gigantic money laundering front for the construction industry. Like, they just, money will go in and it won't come out, or it'll be laundered because no one's buying the chicken, but they can say they're selling the chicken because they have ads and things on the television. They must be selling chicken. They're not actually selling chicken. Right. And yet the kitchen was busy. Well, I, I wonder about that. How much do you guys know about the Australian underground, the, the mundane one? Um, it depends. Like, it, it, it's considerably large. We live in a very corrupt country in some ways. Um, but what exactly are you getting at? Well, uh, I often, more and more lately, I wonder about about this because it, it's not something that's that's super obvious or necessarily like very culturally ingrained the way like you know the mafia is in new york or something but like the other day i found a bullet casing outside of a hotel near my house and it just sort of got me thinking about like something that i can't grab with and i can't really find much information about it online and it just it, it it makes me curious because that is probably the sort of thing i'd want to dive into if i ever ran unknown armies in australia is these shadows right under our noses. I mean, Australia has a very storied history of things like organized crime and um, police corruption. And actually, it was really popular about 10 years ago. All these fictionalized accounts of things like uh, gangland shootings in Melbourne. Um, like Underbelly and stuff. Yeah, that whole series. And it's dozens right. of spinoffs. Um, right. Prior to maybe, that. Maybe... That cultural obsession is just a bit before my time, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom often talks about Bjorki Peterson, but that's kind of a different kind of corruption. Yeah, that that's part of the institutional corruption, which I think is a lot more prevalent in Australia um, and far-reaching. But yeah, we, like, we absolutely have organized crime, and it's everywhere, because that's the way it works in any location that has room for that sort of thing. Right. I was very much aware, I don't know how much I should say this, I, I'll say it because I don't live in the area anymore, but the area I was living before I'm living here now, um, down the road from where I live, there was what, what it, basically it was like an, a, a, a road going off the main road that was like not paved or anything like that. And we weren't even on the, um, for some reason we were on the no, no delivery like address, even though I had like, there was, there's no reason it was a perfectly good road. There's no reason they shouldn't deliver letters there, but they didn't deliver letters on this road. But every day, multiple trucks and multiple like tradie vans would come up and down this little farm road. 
And it became very obvious that there was a drug, there was a meth distribution place at the end of this road. And it also came to my attention that it was very well known that that was there, including by the local cops. But nothing was ever done. It just continued to operate. And we left them alone. <laughs> well, we had no problem with them. But it was odd. Is that a difference with Australia? Is, is his crime less violent here or is it just a difference in how uh how fictionalized it's been i think outside of like petty violence and crime it's a lot more concentrated into fewer hands at least at the upper levels there's less competition because we're an island um we've also got a much smaller population yeah but you'll also find that people will carve out fiefdoms and there won't really be a lot of competition over those things except for in very restricted circles one thing that's uh, been big in Queensland recently is um, Boy Swallows Universe. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. Uh, no, um, I haven't. It's a it's a a book written ostensibly semi autobiographical by this this kid who grew up in a um, a drug dealing household dealing. Uh, I think it's I think it's meth transporting it around Brisbane and it's become a bit of a phenomenon recently because there's a big stage production of it uh, by Queensland Theatre and it's the only real like Brisbane based organised crime media that I can ever remember being uh, exposed to. Yeah and that's a pretty fair representation like it happens and it's everywhere but it's not very out in the open Right um, like you do have instances of other kinds of crime entering into business arrangements. Uh, for example, there was a guy who wanted to be the bouncy castle king of Victoria, and so he committed arson on a bunch of his rivals. <laughs> right. Yes, I heard that story. <laughs> yeah. a burning See, bouncy castle is an amazing mental image. That is an unknown army story, right? Like that's the kind of thing yeah. that like a player puts bouncy castles on a corkboard, and suddenly that's what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the sort of like neo noir petty crime and obsession. Um, yes, that I personally think characterizes a lot of what makes unknown army so special. In terms of this this hungry jacks front thing, if, <laughs> hungry uh, jacks red rooster. Oh, uh, red rooster. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oops, I mixed Hungry up my Jack. shitty fast food chains. Yep. Uh, the difference is Hungry Jacks comes from elsewhere, so less, less land down undery. Look, um, like, like it's very different. Like Red Rooster is lackluster chicken, and Hungry Jacks is a lackluster version of Burger King, which is yes. already itself lackluster, but not as yes. lackluster as Hungry Jacks. You know, <laughs> for US listeners, they had to rename Burger King because I guess we don't have kings here. I don't know. Well, okay, no. There was already a place called Burger King. I think it was... Okay, you, you might know where it was exactly. I think it was South Australia, wasn't it? Um, I couldn't tell you, to be honest. I think it might have been South Australia. So they used the... They had to... The Burger King Corporation, which had a whole bunch of um, trademarks to its name, they went through their big bag of trademarks and they found Hungry Jack's, which was originally a trademark associated with an American pancake product. And they decided to use that. And hungry, they operated as Hungry Jacks in Australia. Then eventually the Burger King Corporation, they got the rights to the name Burger King. 
and they wanted to change it, but the Hungry Jacks franchise in Australia resisted and said no, and there was a breach of contract or whatever, and for a brief period in the early 2000s, Australia had both Burger King and Hungry Jacks that were in direct competition with each other, and the only difference was you couldn't use coupons from one at the other, and there was a big legal dispute, and eventually Hungry Jacks won, Burger King retreated to the airports, and (laughs) that was the end of the Hungry Jacks uh, insurgency. Okay, that is fun. Fast food wars. That seems like something that you could do with Red Rooster and, and Mac attacks, maybe. You know, my mother actually used to terrorize my sister and I because she really hated the idea of Hungry Jacks. She would tell us that Hungry Jack was a giant that ate kids, and that's why we couldn't go there. That's the exact opposite of the story. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and then I was thinking about it the other day, and I remembered I did the exact same thing to my stepniece um, with Grimace telling her that if she didn't finish all her dinner, all her vegetables, that he would come and get her. Holy shit, Yeah, snap her out of existence. It's a, that's, that, that's true. It's Grimace a, will, will come and get you if you don't eat all your onion rings. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just a vicious cycle of food mascot-based abuse. Does Red Rooster, like I've seen the Rooster logo, does it have a, a weird fucked up mascot? Um, no, it, no, I don't think so. It might have at some point, actually. Rooster, probably. Yeah, not that I'm aware gotta of. Be. It's just got that weird sort of uh, white silhouette of a chicken on a red background. Well, now yes. it doesn't. It doesn't use that symbol anymore. Now it's two R's facing each other, or two Wait, really? stylized yeah. R's facing. Well, at least the one here this. is. Yeah, actually, red no. Rooster. It's a. It's a. Oh, wow. It's a facing the viewer picture of a chicken. Or it's two chickens looking at each other. Like two eyes and then the beak is in the middle. Yes. Oh, yes, I see. I that see. Is that what you... Oh, okay. It's like it's like the old woman, young woman thing. Yeah, yes. the, the two faces and the two faces in the bars. So that's actually terrifying now looking at it. What the hell is yeah. this? It's the chicken is staring at the viewer. That's amazing. Okay. The red rooster is watching you. Yeah, I didn't get it either when I... Like, I brought this up when you were talking about it, and yeah, first all I could see was the two R's, and just suddenly these eyes boring into me. It could be one R, and then one, um, the Ya in, um, the Russian letter Ya, which is the R backwards. Well, we, we do have, uh, minor Bratva present here, but, uh, I was more thinking, you know, you could do something in a game with, like, a logo like this representing different things to different people mm. if you could find enough weird hidden ways to look at it you could potentially use that as kind of a, 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 almost a call sign for whatever the red rooster underground is right like if you can see that if you can see the other version you can go through the secret door because you'll have a code yes the the true face of the rooster there is also the Red Rooster line, which came up um, in 2016. Have you heard of this? No. Nope. This was uh, what was... Uh, the Red Rooster line is said to divide um, the economic demographics of Western Sydney. It is a line, a perfect line of Red Roosters that divide the affluent North from the working class or ethnic West of the city, um, divided into... It's associated with what is in uh, the northern Sydney, the Chargrill Charlies, and in western Sydney, El Janar, which is a Lebanese chicken joint. 
the Red Rooster line is meant to be what divides the two sides of Sydney from the Bogans and the Wankers. That is very interesting. Yeah, demarcating a border. Yes, that's fantastic. You could potentially have, if you want to play further into this conflict idea, if you've got these other chicken chains that sort of serve the different demographics, you could potentially have the players as like Red Rooster employees who play like neutral emissaries, sort of like trying to to balance uh, the city in some strange occult way. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because El Janami is um, Arabic for like paradise or heaven, while Chagril Charlie's, hmm, what could that be symbolic for? Hmm, Chagril. Maybe it's hell. <laughs> Maybe it's heaven versus hell. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the cheap and quick way to do it. And there's all kinds of um, references you can make using Charlie as well. Um, the other thing is you could look at it as a form of natural phenomenon that these restaurants just spring up under the right conditions, a sort of backwards version of the Waffle House Index. Right. And so as, you know, some sort of Australian sorcerer, you can use that as an assessment of environmental conditions. Yeah, that's interesting. It's sort of a background to a campaign. Yeah, I, I, like, I've just got this uh, image of a guy standing on a corner looking pensive because across the street you can see a, a construction site <laughs> where they're putting up a new red rooster. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very, very cool idea. A big charger suddenly like pulls out of the city. It's like big contact to the players and they're asking, well, you know, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? They're building a Chargirl Charlie's across the way. Yeah. It's over. Yeah, like the, the next frame is just like his crack pipe falling from his fingers as he runs to the only <laughs> phone booth that hasn't been turned into a Wi-Fi hotspot to make a call. I mean, they're still phone booths, right? They just happen to also be Wi-Fi hotspots? Um, it depends. the ones in Brisbane. It depends on the area. Some of them have been turned into only Wi-Fi. Um, some of them are still right. active, though, because you need that. For you know, emergency phone calls, people who don't have mobile phones, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's something somewhat unique to Australia. Uh, the Telstra monopoly. Uh, oh God. Where you know, again, bringing it back to the kind of telecommunication magic that always interests me about unknown armies. Well, um, Telstra used to be a government entity. It used to be called Telecom, yes. and it was our national telecommunications provider, and then it got sold off, privatized, in that way that Australian governments are addicted to doing. It, yeah, really fun. There are now some private competitors like Optus, but they just they can't match the reach, and mostly they tend to still rely on a lot of infrastructure that Telstra at least has some part ownership of. It's just interesting about how privatization works here. It even works with like the sort of semi-privatized things. Like, um, I have had so much trouble with fucking Australia Post. Australia Post. I had a war with Australia Post in the town I lived in before theirs because they were fucked me over. And there's nothing you can do about Australia Post. And they're so slow and terrible. And part of the reason is because they're half privatized. So every time there's a shortfall and they don't make enough money, taxpayer pays. But every time they make a profit. It goes to the, the shareholders, which is the worst possible way to run something. <laughs> yes. Um, that's definitely the kind of thing that 
an occult cell could prey upon very easily. Or try to turn around. Yeah, try to make better. Let's get the privatization parasites out of the postal system. Yeah, war on post. Or even you could have perhaps certain kinds of adepts uh, trying to like get around Telstra, trying to like set up their own unique communications network. You could have the, this sort of uh, intersection of maybe much older, a much older occultists within Telstra, trying to force them out. Well, like the old cabal of the of the old, it's old teleco, it's old um, telephone magic. That yeah, it, it like like the big twist of the campaign is that it all runs on magic. That the only reason Australia has any telecommunications infrastructure at all is because there's been wizards running it all along. This is why they keep pushing the uh, landline bundle. It's like, you have to have that <laughs> landline bundle. <laughs> you don't understand. Without the landlines, you don't know what these lines mean. You don't know how important this is. Please, we have to keep paying into the system. <laughs> we forgot how it works. Everybody left. <laughs> Please, we're just trying to keep the lights on down here. It keeps breathing. <laughs> no more ley lines or song lines, only landlines. Oh, God. One possibility for, like, an objective, um, and this comes up because I, of something of, I'm trying to get internet set, set up and um, it wasn't working, and I discovered that someone had just ripped all... Like, the previous owner of the house had just, like, I all the cables of the NBN box had just been ripped, like, just torn off, and, like, there was nothing there. And I did, until I'd opened the box, I was like, what's going on? Why isn't this working? I, how does this box open? I spent a long time like trying not to break it, and then opening the box and realizing, oh, the modem's not plugged into anything, and in fact cannot be plugged into anything because all the cables have been ripped out. Wow. Okay. Now, NBN was a fucking disaster in Australia. Anyway, yep. we have terrible internet. That's an objective. Like the alternative, can we set up? An, like because apparently the government can't set up NBN. Could wizards do it instead? Yes. I think that I think that's a very a very fun idea. It's the kind of thing that like you know it's a it's an objective that naturally forces the players to move around to 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 travel both to the urban parts of Australia and the rural parts. You can work a lot into a a traveling infrastructure building campaign. Absolutely. How, how do we use magic to figure out how to get like fast mega like high megabits down these old copper wires in the outback? <laughs> Yeah, and there are all these white elephant pipe dream projects that are constantly proposed and scrapped in government, and there's a whole bureaucratic infrastructure that's just dedicated to churning these things. If anyone's interested in a fictional account of that, I would actually suggest the comedy show Utopia. Oh, yes, that is fantastic. Um, my my mum is a public servant. She works in policy, and you know, like she's always talking about how that show is such a perfect recreation of what it's like. My brain was going to the British show, and I was like, "Wait, what? What are they doing?" Oh, wait, no, no. there's another show. Well, well, that <laughs> is a fantastic show, um, and also uniquely appropriate to UA. Um, do not ever watch the American remake, by the way. I didn't bother. It is very different. How many episodes of that did they manage to produce? I think they made a season and then they scrapped it. Wow. Do you know they made three? They tried. They I think it was three different attempts to make an American remake of Red Dwarf, and it failed every time. I'd never considered it, but Utopia really is so UA, isn't it? The the British yep. version. 
the Australian versions maybe a little too mundane. Um, but they're definitely good for if uh, overseas listeners want to try have a look at what we mean when we when we talk about politics in Australia and policy and how you can easily easily uh, work anything into that framework. Utopia is a good example. Oh, this is the one where the this is where the clip about um, Australia like defending its trade routes with China from China came from. Yeah, that's the show. Yeah. That that it, took off on the Chinese internet. They love that. They think it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it's uh quite uh, interesting that um, Australia's biggest trade partner is also the person that we seem hell bent on antagonizing. The, the person. Well, <laughs> nice. The, who's the person? <laughs> you know, oh, China. No. He wrote the book Kraken, Padido <laughs> oh. Street. Oh God. <laughs> Our greatest trade partner is China Beerville. Oh no! Why does he want it's... all our iron ore? What is he doing with our iron ore? Did you ship all this, all this Australian coal to China Beerville just so you'd have somewhere to send it? We've come up with a unique resolution to the trade standoff. Yeah, uh, but uh, I think China makes up like what two thirds of our raw exports, like raw material exports. Well, this is what's happening. What's happening now is so alarming because the main reason that Australia avoided the worst during the global recession in 2008 is we could continue just to send shit to China. And we did. And so and there was that glorious, glorious time when the Australian dollar was like on par with the US dollar. So everyone was just buying things from the US because it was just so much cheaper to get it sent from the US than to pay ridiculous Australian prices. But if the if what's going on now with the Chinese property market collapsing, probably deliberately, um, probably out of like a plan by the Chinese state not to have a bubble, and if they stop buying our iron ore and our coal and all our resources, and if things don't improve, uh, like basically right now everyone expects that once COVID is over, then everyone's going to go out and buy things and the economy is going to improve. But everyone's lost their fucking job and things are looking grim. I'm not sure there's going to be a recovery, especially with the, like, the fact that the global um, supply chains are so fucked up because they just left all the cargo. The, the big problem they have right now is the, um, the big uh, cargo container, the containers, which at the early at the start of the COVID thing, they just peep, the companies just sort of like left them at random ports because they were too expensive to ship. And now, like, trade is trying to pick up, but, like, they don't have enough containers in the right place because they've been left wherever they happened to be. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a debacle. And for Australia, it's going to be real bad if things don't improve. Because if China doesn't buy, it doesn't continue to buy our ore and our coal and all our shit, if they buy less and everyone who's invested in property, which the property market in Australia is now, like, five times bigger than our GDP. Um, we're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this plays into a sort of complacency that comes from something that I touched on before the show, the idea of Australia as the lucky country, which itself was, as you pointed out, originally intended to be an insult. Or at least a criticism, a self-criticism. I right. I mean, it, it comes from a book which I've looked up and... Uh, the title comes from the opening words of the book's last chapter, which are, Australia is a lucky country 
run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders, in all fields, so lack curiosity about it, the events that surround them, that they are often taken by surprise. Many Australians completely ignore the origin, and are, just as the book describes, happy to just be the lucky country and not think too much about it, which in a way feels very, very unknown armies. There's, there's, a, there's a level of self-satisfaction in our luck. Yeah, there's this, there's this complacency in the fact that we've been buoyed along by a natural resources market where two-thirds of our exports are made up of coal and iron and other crap that we drag out of the ground and send overseas that may, as you pointed out, very soon coming to an end. And one thing that I think would be interesting to explore is a sort of speculative 15 minutes into the future look at what Australia could be like in that sort of situation. But in terms of unknown armies, lens through a sort of man in the high castle look at the way that we live in a world that's determined by luck and chance in many regards and how an alternative may exist to a cabal who is looking to pierce through. That is a very, very interesting idea. Mm. Mm. So would you have the game start in this alternate Australia, or would you have it transition to it? I think having it start in this alternative Australia, although it wouldn't be something that would be really familiar to a lot of players, would be more compelling, because they have this new setting that they held up sort of... It's the same as the world they live in, but has this very stark difference... And that would be something well, to hone right. in on thematically. And then you you know, that- have an artifact from this alternative timeline where it never turned out that way sort of come through. Right. Sort of similar to your idea before. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I think yeah, a lot of my thinking about running games in Australia kind of centers around trying to find ways to introduce some kind of national conflict or issue that we don't often have to face here. But the other thing is that, like, a lot of smaller Australian fiction film focuses on very personal and small-scale tragedies. Right. Mm. And a lot of that would play very well into a setting in which that comes from an overarching perspective. Um, We've also got other alt-history things, like Tomorrow When the War Began. That's Australian? Yeah, wasn't it? That was an Australian novel series. Yes, and then... we were invaded Sorry. by someone who has never, like, it's never declared which country invades us. It's some Asian <laughs> country, but no, it's not declared. Is it Indonesia? Is it China? Is it Brunei? We'll never tell. It's got to be North Korea and, like, Red Faction. I always got the impression that it was Indonesia. I read, like, the first book, the one that's actually got the title, and I guess I was young enough that it didn't occur to me, probably, that, like, it was obviously... Australia, and all the places of Australia, I guess at, at that age when I read it, I just thought everything was Australia. I, I, I read young, I got into young adult when I was way too young, but then thankfully that meant I could get out of it quite quickly as well. I think they might have assigned it to us in primary school, like like primary really? school for me. It has like sex scenes and stuff. Yeah, but like I was like 12, like it was last grade of primary school, but I'm pretty sure they assigned it right. to us. Right, okay. Ah, uh, that reminds me of when I was very young and precocious reader, went to the library and read read lots of books, and no one ever checked what I was reading. 
Yeah. Or I could just read Stephen King's It and the fucked up sex scenes and no one ever knew. <laughs> no one ever knew. Because how could they? I was always the one showing like whatever sex scene I found in the library to my friends. The only time that I felt like kind of cool as a reader. I do remember at one point, uh, the librarians never cared what I was reading, but I remember my, my English teacher once saw me reading uh, Dead Famous in class and just came up to me and said, Peter, that's not in your age group. And I, I just laughed and he walked off. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I was at my aunt's place once and her and my mother were off doing, you know, adult conversation things. So I went, hung out in the sunroom where there was a bookcase and I picked a copy of it off the bookshelf, and started reading it. And eventually my aunt comes out and says, oh, no, you don't want to be reading that. And she takes it off <laughs> And she turns around to the bookshelf and she picks up a copy of Carrie and turns around and gives me that. And she says, start with this one. It's shorter. <laughs> that is a, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great reversal. Yeah. Um, it was actually my first exposure to epistolary as a form of storytelling, which I found confusing and compelling at that age. Uh, I have to ask what epistolary is. Uh, it's where you tell a story through a collection of things like newspaper articles and letters and interviews. Oh, like, I see. like Like Dracula. Right. Yeah, right. Or like almost any Lovecraft story. Yeah, like um, Call of Cthulhu has a lot of that. Yeah. I enjoy some epistolary. It's a fun way to present things. Um, I would like to talk about Jim's mowing. If you guys are familiar with that, because this kind of ties in with some of what uh, Ben was saying in a weird sort of way, especially in terms of how self-satisfied we are. For overseas listeners, it's something we have a lot of is tradey like organizations that are just in like the name of some guy and then whatever the profession is. Um, like here in Brisbane, we have uh, peats, possums and birds. Well, Jim's mowing is a bit more than that. Jim's mowing has got like um, thousands of franchisees. Because this guy, I'm not. I'm surprised you would have seen it somewhere around the Jim's mowing logo somewhere. Surely, can't you? no, I, no. We have Jim's mowing here. Yes, uh, there's more than Jim's mowing, because uh, Jim Penman is an interesting sort of character. Now, Jim Penman was he was a Mormon, born in England, and came to Australia, and he went to Latrobe University in Victoria, and in 1974 he began work on a PhD under the influence of what was called the Melbourne Group at La Trobe University. And their main thing, they argued that the key to understanding world history and human history was character, the character of peoples. And okay. he wrote a thesis, and his thesis was rejected, and he wanted to go into academia, but it wasn't working out for him. He ended up, he began a lawn care business with an initial budget of 20 $4. And over the course of the 80s and the 90s, it's expanded into a large, a big franchise because the franchise model hadn't been extended to services in Australia at the time. Um, but this was coming, it was coming in and he expanded um, the franchise model. So basically, if you had like 50 grand or 40 grand, you could buy your way into the franchise and start your own business under the Jim's mowing ages. And if you had any problems, they would sort things out for you. And this eventually grew into... What do you mean by problems? Are there specific examples there? Well, things with um, dealing with clients and anything. Like, you had to follow the um, their way of doing things. 
but if there was any problem with um, running the business that wasn't your fault, you had a bit of a backup that you could right, fall okay. back upon. And okay. this ex- now it expanded. It expanded beyond mowing, and there's like at least over fifty different gyms companies covering different maintenance and cleaning options, like antennas, car detailing, dog washing, fly screen and blinds, pool care, skip bins, window tinting, all kinds of things, locksmithing, like pretty much everything you could ask for. Yeah, I have some cables with like Jim's cables tagged onto them. Now, what he he never really wanted to get into lawn care or the lawn care business, but he did quite well, but he was known for being a a very harsh boss. He wasn't really much of a people person. Um, he was very quick to anger and quick to fire people. He apparently fired his own sister and hasn't talked to her since. This was back in the 80s. Uh, so he was a pretty... He was a very dedicated his uh, business, but this was all in aid of his academic career. Now, in 1992, he published a book. He self-published a book entitled the Hungry Ape, Biology and the Fall of Civilizations. Now, this book is kind of interesting in terms of the fact that it's, it goes deep into... This was his first book on the subject that he would get into. We would later call biohistory. But how this began with um, The Hungry Ape was he decided that different races and ethnic groups had different temperaments which he decided he originally referred to these attributes of the temperaments as restraint and vigor um this in his later work he would change this into the civilization factor the c factor and the vigor factor the v factor um and he would say that the reason civilizations rose and fell was everything to do with how much of the c factor or how much restraint they had and how much vigor they had and the exact uh, combination and how things worked out. And in his later works, which he used um, his mowing business money to produce, he developed his biohistory idea where in basically the amount of civilization something someone has, like some a society has, is dependent on how much they are disciplined as a child not just as a child but as a baby because he believed that to promote civilization it was important to discipline children from a very young age harshly and indulging children but then disciplining them later would make them violent but uncivilized while to make a true like a good civilized uh, high sea culture you needed to have discipline from a very early age and he would he by balance by comparing uh by using c and v he basically would characterize all the different societies of history in different ways like he would say oh victorian britain had high high v and high c but the mongol hordes and the yanomami people of the amazon they had high v high vigor but low civilization low c and he would combine and he combined this with various research he did uh, on both he did and he used from other people that wasn't based on humans, but was based on animal behavior because he funds a research lab at Latrobe University where they study um, mice. And in his theory, he believes that to promote high C, to promote civilization, it requires disciplining children. It also requires sexual uh, fast, like not having too much sex. You must limit the amount of sex you have. And also 
chronic low-level fasting because if you are it has to be chronic it has to be all the time and low level you should be a little bit hungry all the time if you're hungry only some of the time that makes you violent but if you're hungry all the time a little bit hungry all the time that makes you civilized and so he funds this research at Latrobe University and there's this amazing quote from a a scientist who works there who says Jim has a lot of ideas and it's my job to turn these into testable hypotheses <laughs> which is basically this guy's crazy but he's paying for everything so yeah, i can research you keep using that the for money you keep using the present tense is this ongoing yes yeah oh my goodness yes no, there's so guy, much to unpack here this guy sounds like a bizarro version of jared diamond you know the guy that wrote guns germs and steel who argues that yeah. uh, differences in technological development were primarily environment driven well, at least yeah. with Jared Diamond, it does have some links with like geography, and yeah. there is yeah. Jared Diamond's an actual arguing, historian. He's also arguing evil, the exact opposite thing. Yeah, evil Jared Diamond. Like yeah. civilization is all about being hungry <laughs> and not having too much sex, and also disciplining your babies. Oh my goodness, there is so much to work with. But here. I mean, there's more. There's more. Because he sees this as a big problem. Because a lot of the information in his book is is quite racist, as you would, would, may not be surprised. I am, but yeah, completely unsurprised. He says he's not racist because he is trying to find a cure for these problems. Because he believes that because um, the levels of C and V in individuals can vary according to how they were up brought up, according to their culture, and that affects their character. But he believes that this can be cured. And in the eight, 1998 article, which I read, he described the cure as a, a, a pest strip type device which could be placed in people's homes and emit pheromones that would fix their sea levels. But now, instead, in his newer work, he talks instead about the potential for developing a supplement or a nasal spray that people could take to increase their levels of sea. Oh, my God. God, oh my God! Where do you start with that? I mean, a wizard using C and V, a fucking cult trying to spread around nasal sprays, and you've got this tradey backdrop to it all. Yeah, like you could do a sort of a, a riff on Auto Corpulentus, where his muscle of people that mow lawns for a living, like he's got to select few of those that uh, maybe have a slightly dodgy background that uh, deal with problems for him. Yeah, Thompson mentioned that specifically. They deal with problems for you. <laughs> they, they deal with the problems of your character. It's not your fault that your culture has given you bad character, but take Jim's nasal spray. Jim's civilizing nasal spray. Nasal spray. Oh, my God. Like a, a contact disappears for a while. He comes back. He's, like, doing all this weird stuff. He... He barely eats at dinner. Uh, he used to like be a massive party animal going out every night. Doesn't do that anymore. Keeps sneaking off to the uh, bathroom to snort something. Yeah. I think he's got a coke problem. Yeah. Reverse rehab. Yeah. And then he, and then he starts offering you these nasal sprays. With the dark green color and Jim Penman's face smiling out of it <laughs> with his beard and hat. It could even be like, like yeah, something like... Uh, like, like Jim's medicals or Jim's sprays or something. 
James well, Buchanan. I mean, uh, if Dick Smith can be making peanut butter in his backyard to sell people. Yeah. That's, that's all that Dick, Dick Smith, Smith is uh, doing now. Dick Smith is owned by Kogan now. Yeah, for those outside of Australia, Dick Smith is a, uh, a man who owns a one of one of our largest owned, branches. Owned. Okay. Owned. Previously <laughs> owned. owned. Dick Smith doesn't our, exist anymore. Kogan okay. owns it. Previously owned one of Australia's largest electronics retailers and then went into other kinds of business over time. Now he smiles on a grateful universe. I'm pissed off at Dick Smith because I was going to buy a new phone, a nice new phone, and I was it couldn't find it in Australia. So I was going to like I was looking to places I could get it, and a few months ago, and the only place I could get it was this dodgy Hong Kong company that would send it, and I almost bought it, and then I did not. And then a couple of months later, I saw I could get it from Dick Smith, so I got the phone and the case and all the things, and then. I got all the case and stuff really quickly, and it took like a month for me to get my phone because it got stuck by in toll logistics. The terrible, um, worst, world's worst FedEx had my phone sitting in the warehouse for uh, like a month, and finally they sent it out to me. And I opened the box and I found the phone, and it was a good phone. And I, then I noticed that it was covered in stickers, which the stickers had the name of the dodgy Hong Kong company that I originally didn't want to buy from. And also the back of the box said, for sale, uh, for sale and warranty only in mainland China. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am completely unsurprised. So any obvious parallels? Do, do we have like a civilization archetype or a vigor archetype? Well, what's interesting, and this ties in with the with, uh, Ben's idea of doing like a, a future, old future Australia campaign, is what will happen if, Jim's ideas are not adopted. He believes that the West will continue its economic and moral decline, with China taking over the reins as the next world power, followed by a few thousand years of hegemony from a unified body of African states. And by the year 4000, the world will be comprised of, and I quote, poor peasant farmers where women are mutilated by clitorodectomy and this kind of garbage. Wow. Well, that's certainly another space. Yep. <laughs> that that's something you can you can play with, you know, like uh more and more it seems like China's the big boogeyman. So that kind of fear could work well for unknown armies. I just keep thinking of the, the idea Penrith 2077, the cyberpunk what? Australian future. <laughs> no, God. in 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 Penrith City. Yeah. What makes you a criminal? That would be an interesting setting. Cyberpunk Australia. Yeah. I was just thinking that in context of this sort of near future poverty Australia, where, you know, high tech low life sort of fits the bill. My Our cyberpunk future is just like five years behind the American cyberpunk future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. The, the, the American. Cyberpunk future is already like completely collapsed. Or ours is just on the verge of it. So if if we have Jim, if we say that Jim has 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 perfected or or, deci- or decided that his nasal spray is good enough to start deploying, what mechanisms does he use? How does he start spreading it around? Possibly through the franchise. Um, I think they'd start testing it. I think they'd start testing it as a street thing. 
like that would be the way that you would do large scale testing in an underground fashion. You offer it to people as a street drug. I right. would say that's the obvious idea, but considering that the, the fact that it was very difficult for me to like find information on his dodginess, except what he puts up, no one likes to talk about it because he is a big businessman with like not a street drug, um, an alternative health thing, because that's mm. become very big, especially with you know vaccine resistance being a big thing with people these days. You're absolutely right. It could totally work there. Uh... Yeah, my family's really into all that sort of stuff. Uh, that could easily be a, a delivery method. Plus, it lets you monitor your um, cohort to see how well it's working. In his original um, book, his uh, The Hungry Ape book from 1992, which is a bit more racist. The thing is, I hear that title, and it makes me think of a children's book, like The Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> He does quote several things which are fucked up. He does say, on Aboriginals, they are unsuited in general to the discipline of academic study and of many jobs. They have become a poor underclass. A high and like so I could easily imagine him considering how fucked up our um government and our so called welfare state is, I could easily like they're trying to bring in things like, Oh, Centrelink, but you can only use a special card to buy food because we don't want people buying drugs and things with that. So take this card, yeah. so it turns out that it costs more to administrate that card per person than the actual yearly benefit that they would get. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Like, the entire system is meant to, like, hemorrhage money yeah. um, and not Two actually help people. liberal party yeah. donors because one of them owns the company that administrates it. Well, that's something that Jim could easily prey upon, that institutional corruption. I could easily see, like, it becoming a new thing for, like, oh, do you want to keep getting your $657 a fortnight, Centrelink? Well, take this nasal spray, and then you don't have to apply for as many jobs. <laughs> wow, yeah, if you if you, if you you have proof you're taking the nasal spray, they reduce it down to two jobs so a fortnight, so, two jobs a month. Yeah, so it's like an alternative work for the doll thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. And th that easily, like, that's a, a obvious hook for any, pretty much any Unknown Armies character who, if you have an Unknown Armies character in Australia, they they probably at least have been on Centrelink at one point and probably currently are being, you know, freaks the edge of society. Centrelink is our, um, for American listeners, Centrelink is our, what is it, the doll? What do they call it? Like, uh, Unemployment. It America? Unemployment benefit. Welfare. Welfare, yeah. We have um, uh, probably a more robust uh, social net than America does, but at the same time, it's also absolutely fucking plagued with these institutional issues uh, with stuff like the robo-debt crisis, yeah. where they can't afford to actually staff Centrelink, so they just have these... Uh, they, they just have AI try to handle everything. And then when the AI makes mistakes, people end up like thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that they shouldn't be. Because the way Centrelink works is that just on a dime, they'll just like, a, a, the robot detects a discrepancy and suddenly like you owe like three years of Centrelink pay that you could not possibly ever pay back. And then they give the debt to a debt collector, a private debt collector. And then you're fucked. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, Kafka-esque stories that come out of our 
social security bureaucracy. You think that, like, if they want people to get jobs, they wouldn't be automating their own systems. It's just, like, no one likes to talk to the robots. If you want people to have jobs, just give them jobs at Centrelink. Well, Centrelink is an example of a semi-privatized thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, because you've got the um, you got the job services network, which are a bunch of privatized providers that uh, contract out the making sure people are looking for work aspect of it. And a right. lot of those are party donors, like Serena Russo. Yay! Uh, for those wondering, when we talk about uh, liberal uh, in this episode, we're referring to the Australian Liberal Party, which is our uh, primary conservative party. Yeah, it's a it's they're, a little uh, backwards. Economically liberal, not socially liberal. Yeah. Whereas our Labour Party is the other side of that coin. Yes, and they're really uh, they're they're nowhere near as. Um, I guess uh, extreme as the U.S. party divide. They, it's, they, they, pretty, it's getting extreme. It's getting more extreme. I don't know. I mean, I mean, like some of the studies on the Red Rooster line showed a pretty clear divide in what, like, the first party preferences were based on what side of the Red Rooster line people were on. Right, but in terms of, like, from a policy perspective. Oh, because the U.S. isn't that different. They're the same party as well. It's just like little differences. Right. It's like that all over the Anglosphere. Like like Labour and the Conservatives in the U.K. and Labour and Liberal and Labour and Coalition here and Republicans and Democrats there in the U.S. It's it's all the same party. I mean, like, you know, from a kind of a mathematical standpoint, you want to be as close to the centre as possible to carve up as many votes from whatever side of the centre you're on. But, like, you would never have someone like Bernie Sanders get even close to power in the Australian system. Right. Um, well, the other thing is we also have, despite the fact that we do very much live under a two-party system, we have a broader um, array of political parties. That's right. The Greens actually pick up seats in Brisbane. And a lot of governments are formed in coalition with these smaller parties and independents. So I think that leads to a general moderating factor. And that's like real different compared to the US, but it's not that special compared to like lots of European countries or like New Zealand, for example. But still, I've no doubt that most of your listeners are are stateies. Stateies? Yanks. Well, they're not not all Yanks, right? Like, uh, you've got to include the South as well, whatever they're called. Well, is that, well is that, isn't that our quote about that? Like, um, to a non-American, all Americans are Yankees. To a Southerner, Northerners are Yankees. To a Northerner, what was it? New Englanders are Yankees. And, like, to New Englanders, like, someone who eats cheese and has a Dutch last name is a Yankee or something like that. Yeah, that was what I was getting at. Right, right. Just call them by their proper name, Zeppos. Zeppos? Well, that is a derivative of Yank. Oh, that's Seppo, as heard... in septic tank, as in Yank. That's true. Oh. that's true. It's part of Australian rhyming slang. Well, th- that's something that I think um, you could do a whole episode on in and of itself, the way Australians use language. The thing is, I've not really encountered rhyming slang as a thing in Australia. We get a couple of derivative terms. Okay. Well, we get a couple of derivative terms. That have stood the test of time, but it's not really a thing anymore. My understanding of the term "sepo" specifically is it comes from it does come from Queensland actually, 
because it, it, it originated during the uh, during World War II when a lot of U.S. soldiers were stationed in Queensland um, for the Pacific War, and like the soldiers, what they, the soldiers were soldiers, and they went around like all the. It was a situation when all the Australians were up fighting somewhere, or young, lots of young Australians were up fighting somewhere, and the Americans were here, and they were getting up to no good, as you'd expect, which happened everywhere in the war. And so it's, it became... It's why became King's different. Cross is the way that it is. Because um, King's Cross used to be the theatre district in um, Sydney, and then World War Two, post-World War Two, it turned into the red light district. Right. Mm, that makes Here in Brisbane, it's all one district get off the bus in King George Square and oh there's showgirls but no we have a lot of rhyming slang here I hear a fair bit of it definitely from the older generation it's not something that's really made the jump to like internet zoomers um, I mean my generation is pretty much entirely like valley slang really it's all Californication I don't think anyone my age like says anything but of course it's it's Australian Zoomers are using terms that are five years older than American Zoomers. That must be how it works. <laughs> right, yeah, still behind. Um, you know, like, uh, you don't quite have people uh, caught up with down bad, whatever it is now. Um, we've got selfie, I guess. That was us. That's something. Um, oh, but that's just... Because Australian, like, language has a lot of, like, um, diminutive words, um, yes. which are... Fun and fine. I didn't mind like things that we sort of take pride in overseas in an annoying kind of way. It's like we don't call it breakfast; we call it brekkie, and yeah. that's it's 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 fine if it's just at like amongst at your family. But it annoys me when I'm out, like in the shopping center, and every restaurant says like brekkie options, and I'm like, just you're a fucking uh, restaurant. Call it breakfast, yeah. please. Come on, silence brand. Yeah, I mean it's an it's an inherent characteristic of having middling sea levels. <laughs> yeah, in Penrith City, it would be called fasty, because that's what you're meant to be doing oh, yeah. in the morning. <laughs> no, oh yeah, because you're fasting in the morning. Well, yeah, you wouldn't be right. you wouldn't be eating then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fasty options. Fasty, fasty options. Nothing. Sp- spray. Yeah. <laughs> spray, yeah, it's the nasal spray. <laughs> how how do Aussies corrupt the, the these pseudo academic terms that James, the, the brilliant James Penrith has brought to us? We currently have C or V, but you could have some kind of rhyming slang with spray, which maybe if we keep it in the modern day could be like. Um, like a code word that whatever the muscle of of Jim's mowing is uses. I don't want to be fucked with the Jim's mowing muscle. It's trainers <laughs> with like lawn mowing equipment. That's terrifying. <laughs> you like in terms of like a um, antagonist faction in Unknown Army, it's like just angry lawn mowing men. It's it's and also it's not just lawn mowing men. It's all the um, it's like window tinters and locksmiths. Oh shit, I have to yeah. look at this list again. Yeah, well, no, like, almost everything, he's got his hands in to some extent. It, it's very much so, the, uh, the the bike club, we take out your trash, we prepare your food thing. Yes, yes. The working class conglomerate. Yeah, and we're um, doing it, and we're doing it uh, in a franchise model. It's a franchise model bike club. You could have, like, um, 
maybe like like instead of spray, but like tray or something. Like just gonna go to the bathroom and pick up a tray. Yeah. Something I like could that. absolutely see somebody that I know saying that and it would fit. Yeah. Spray spray it Saturday. Which of course, um in in the in the future when Jim's hegemony is complete, it would be called um Trey Day or Trady. Well, I think as a basis for like we've got a few different like a straight leap campaign ideas here. And I think like I like the idea of a cabal working like at Red Rooster, but then the the Jim's mowing conspiracy being like a backdrop. Because often with unknown armies you have your objective and the GM is supposed to like bring things like have put up obstacles or like potential distractions. So I can imagine like a Red Rooster Cabal trying to like maintain peace between like yeah, we Elgin West and the uh Charcoal Fridays North Fridays North. It's like a, a mini sort of fast food wars, like a mini Mac Attacks wars. But then, like, references the fact that Jim's mowing is introducing this, like, mind-altering nasal spray for Centrelink people. That's something that really worked for me in ALAM was you just having, like, the city collapsing into animalistic warfare in the background. I really, really enjoyed that. And I think you're right. Like, maybe Jim's is too much to take on as, like, a main thing of the campaign. But having it as, like, a backdrop with people slowly starting to use these sprays and stuff, and maybe you could allow the Cabal to get their hands on them, and they have certain, they give you certain abilities, but certain downsides as well. Even mm. if you, uh, even if you regionalized the issue of the sprays, like, okay, there's a local branch, and they're causing this other problem. And then the players can engage with it or ignore it as they wish. Yeah, and it's something that you can still deal with without having to bite off more than you could possibly chew. Glad you saved it for last, because that just absolutely is, like, a jewel in the crown for an Australian game. I have never heard of anything that fucking freaky in Australia, and that it's still happening now. Like, yep. this is ongoing research. And from what you say, it's hard to find as well, which is just the perfect icing on the cake. It's not super hard to find, it's just no one wants to talk about it. Yeah, sort of. Well, except Jim Penman himself, who, like, does interviews right. with people. Um, but like it's sort of like a conspicuous silence in the media about the fact that this major Australian businessman has some fucking nutty ideas. Yeah, I mean it's not unique to him either. Although he is probably one of the most prominent examples of it. Um, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called "Them and Us," which posits the idea of the Neanderthal as this cannibalistic predator. Yes, that's right. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, that was written by an Australian guy who worked, I think he worked in the theatre industry. Right. Like, he didn't have yeah. any formal archaeological or anthropological qualifications. I gotta say, when you say, like, a a book called Them and Us coming out of Australia, you immediately uh, worry about it being about um, Aboriginals and such. Yeah. But at least it's, it's demonising a, a dead... Species. Yeah, I've never actually read it, so I could be getting the details probably wrong, correct? Yeah, well, that's something where, like, you know, Australia is also another thing that I was thinking about with setting games in Australia is that it's so vast that it really has. I guess this is something it shares with the US, but there's really room for anything, like in that central desert. You know, like, there could be a lost tribe of Neanderthals or whatever you want to put there. 
This is why there's a semi-serious like theory that um, Aum Shinri Kyo, the Japanese cult, tested nuclear weapons in the Australian outback, <laughs> and no one found out about it. Um, I right. mean, they did find a bunch of dead sheep on a station that they rented. It, it was possible that they had tested anthrax on or something like that, wasn't it? That's a lot more believable, but I like the nuclear bomb idea more. They were also trying to get a hold of um, Ebola samples at one point. I mean, no one would notice, really. Um, I mean, you know, given like how much the US did nuclear testing there as well. Well, I know it was, no, it was the British that did nuclear testing here. Yeah, um, Maralinga. I do remember right. reading about how they were testing in the, um, the Nullarbor Plain in um, West Australia, all the way to, like between West Australia and uh, South Australia, which is like Nullarbor is it sounds Aboriginal, but it's Latin for no trees because it's like the like the it's just desolate. It's like Death Valley, but for longer, much longer. Right. But they were testing nukes out there, and they realized that like someone mentioned that oh wait, there's like Aboriginal tribes living out there, and so their solution yeah. to their prob- that problem was to drop leaflets warning them. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think that that was the focus of a recent um, comedy series on the ABC. Um, I think it was that specific story on the Nullarbor Plain about um, all the basically just like complete disregard for the indigenous population as as the government has always done um, in terms of uh, nuclear testing out there. But well, I think, thought it. I thought it was the U.S. that was involved. The U.S. is involved everywhere, but it was the British who were right. testing here. Right. Yeah, okay. it was because um, they didn't have anywhere to test because it's a very the, tiny island. Yeah. Right. Um, I did look up the thing about Om Shinrikyo. Um, it wasn't anthrax that they tested here. They did attempt to uh, cause an anthrax epidemic by spraying large amounts of liquid containing the spores from a cooling tower on the roof of their headquarters, which failed. But the uh, wow. the Australian thing was them testing their sarin gas on sheep at a station uh. on a remote property in Western Australia. So yeah, uh, they found buried sheep that had been killed by nerve gas. Now imagine if Alm Shinri Kyo and Jim's mowing joined forces. <laughs> forget, forget the mice trials at La Trobe University. He's upgraded yeah. to sheep. Or you can imagine He's got a very yeah, civilized like, sheep. Some guy finds a big old canister with Japanese markings on it. Yeah, yeah. Has there ever been uh, any kind of unknown armies like uh, support for Asian regions in general, like China or Japan, that could potentially be applied here? Well, what um, do you mean? Like, well, not much. I've done some. Right. I did some schools. I did some magic schools, but um, right. I have notes, and we're working on some Japan-based stuff, but there's a lot. We want to talk about that at some point. But the thing is, Anonamis could be applied to so many parts of the world. But yes, there there isn't much in the um, the books themselves uh, related to Asian occult underground. Um, very right. little. Yeah. It, from my reading, it's it's generally uh, an American focus. But even then, like. Um, with the Americans, because they they do reference a lot of like old occultism and the occult traditions, and it's mostly like your like Western occult tradition. But even from right. the U.S. like setting, it seems silly that there's not more like Asian occult stuff because like California and Hawaii 
and like yeah. parts of the US which have lots of Asian people. Like that's you could have unknown armies. Like they're gonna be influenced. Their, their occult undergrounds are gonna be influenced by the older occult traditions of whoever lives there. So right, be more material. It's the kind of thing that that could be explored um, in that sort of uh, trade based um, game that we we touched on earlier. Uh, with the potential collapse of trade between Australia and China. You could also potentially have occult connections being built or severed there as well. Mm. Maybe. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, using the occult to wallpaper over the gaps in civilization that we never really accounted for. Yeah. Wasn't factored into Jim's C-factor equations. Yeah, I mean, it's that's been the use of the occult for basically as long as it has been a thing for people like right. we need an answer to this thing can you make it rain can you you know make my father not sick anymore can you bless our marriage so we have a bunch of kids can you make my coal-based economy work again yeah <laughs> this is interesting it reminds me of like i was doing this some reading recently on this a terribly boring subject called like transnational governance which is the subject of like how so much international governance is not like based on like country to country um, agreements um, in terms of international governance or global governance. It's based on like various companies and parts of governments and NGOs all having this web of agreements with each other that like pay, like levels and levels of different agreements at different um, at different scales that all like tie together into this international web of legislation and laws and norms that is actually how the gov- like the global global governance insofar it actually exists it exists in this in this ridiculous form and i was considering how fucking difficult that would be to even influence in any meaningful way and i thought well the only way you can influence that sort of shit in a meaningful way is through magic so i thought we should there should be a, a cabal of people that and I was gonna have them in Perth even if, if it exists because to have like, I'm imagining like a think tank that d- deals a lot with like really boring like EU politics and international um, agreements and things but actually they go out into the middle of the desert and they go out into the ocean and they, that's why they're set in Perth because there's so much like open space relatively close by and just drive out and do these massive rituals for customers who just want like to make sure that the the german parliament's agreement no the, the german some german government's agreement with some ngo goes through this way as opposed to the other way right it's like a microcosm of what ben was talking about where you know the natural world is too complex for us to process so we have the occult world and the archetypes to help us with it same with now the the transnational world yes and i was going to say it in perth because they they specialize in magical black swans, black swan events. Get it? Get it? Yeah, I do like that. I I, I don't get it. I, I've never I've never been to fake cities. Sorry. You, you know you know the black swan, right? The the bird. Yes, yes. Do you know and, what black the, swan and event? The, the 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 phenomenon. Yes. But what's that do with Perth? Black swans were discovered in Perth. Oh, I see. Australia is okay, full well. of things like that. They thought platypuses were a joke when they first discovered them. Which, to be fair, who can blame them? It's a duck that's also a beaver that's also poisonous and lays eggs. <laughs> Very yeah. poisonous. 
like if there's anywhere in the world where, like Australia's got to be the the world capital of how did this creature come to be a wizard did it like there's so many like owlbear equivalents here of just weird fucked up little gremlin things I don't remember like, like, whether I ever brought and, and this up is yeah, I don't remember whether I ever brought this up in the previous episode, but drop bears were actually a real thing in antiquity. They're called marsupial lions, and although <laughs> they haven't been around for a very long time, there is evidence based upon the way their bodies are structured that they would kill their prey by climbing trees and then dri- diving down out of them. You definitely didn't mention the last episode. I would have remembered. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, now we've got we've got all these like fucked up, crazy occultist tradey businessmen there should be one that's like uh the jurassic park guy but trying to bring back all the extinct marsupials the reverse of marsupial park jim's gotta have like an extermination arm right yeah oh yeah maybe it collects samples yeah well i mean he's got access to laboratory equipment through latrobe yeah I i wonder if you could have the players potentially like be based be academics or something. I don't know how well an army's functions with that sort of Oh, it'd be cabal. fine. Yeah. You could it'd absolutely do a group of academics within a university. In fact I think right. that was one of the uh the first we didn't end up doing it, but it was one of the first cabal suggestions for the very first game I ran in Right, okay. I like the idea that throughout a campaign we just that like the DM just drops in references. Like if it's an Australian campaign, just drops in references to like drop bears as like a joke because it's like they're not real. It's just something told we tell Americans to like confuse them. And then at the end of the campaign, like Jim Penman sends the marsupial lion like coming down from the tree. And we're like, oh fuck, it was real all along. Yeah, I think a lot about like how I would run how I would use like Australian tropes with other Australians, but there's almost as much to be mined with exploiting like how Americans know some things about Australia. Missing like they crucial know that, context. They yeah, be bamboozled. That that's very fun to play around with. Okay, Ben has just linked the thylacolio carnifex. That's the scientific name for the marsupial lion. So that is uh something that the listener can investigate. Lived in Australia from the early to the late Pleistocene. You guys did mention um, in the in the other Australian episode about megafauna and such in Australia, and that is a fun thing to play with, especially if we have the ancient other space that we talked about. Right, like wombats the size of a minivan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you guys ever played that game, The Long Drive? I have not. Uh, I haven't heard of it. Uh, it's an American game, but it's made by like a Finnish developer, I think. Um, and it's it's sort of a satire of like those really long, long roads in America that drive people insane. And the world has gone through this rabbit-based apocalypse with these big black rabbits everywhere that try to kill you. But it it always sort of... It made me think of like um, of us of Australia and driving through the outback in a similar situation, except you would just have so much more variety of of creatures and especially oversized creatures. 
to just play kangaroos with. jumping at you yeah actually this was something that happened to me just now just as i i, I thought it was a bad omen as i was um riding my bike to red rooster to get my research rooster i was riding along this like book this uh bike path near my house and i saw these two crows like they were just like they were fucking around on the footpath and i was like whatever and as I got closer, I expect them just to fly away. And one of them flew away. The other one just flew right at the wheels of my bike. And I, <laughs> I thought I hit it. But then I turned around and it was gone. And I was like, that's a bad omen. But I'll still continue to do this podcast. I'm not afraid. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomena. That's something you can, you can use with um, just like drawing into the background like odd animals showing up in the cities that shouldn't really be there. Like... We've got, um, you know, possums and rats and bats, but like, you know, you're walking through the streets and there's just a little like colony of koalas on a telephone pole. Yeah. I remember when I was at university coming home late one night and silhouetted in the sunset were a family of possums um, coming across the top of the wire of a power pole. Yeah. I mean, they're... uh, they're majestic creatures, and there's room there for, like, uh, you know, all kinds of... Uh, I don't know how many seems to have this thing with rodents. I don't know if that's just in the third edition. Uh, but, like, even with gutter magic and such, there's lots of interesting rodents to use in Australia, or rodent-like creatures. Well, that's the thing. Like, those, like, rodent-like creatures often considered, like, they're quite important for conservationists. Um, marsupial rodents of various types but no one gives a fuck about them so it's a constant problem where like oh let's save the panda bear and the panda bear is a terrible species of animal it's useless if if there were no humans it would still go extinct because (laughs) it it could eat whatever it wanted it can digest whatever it wants but it insists it insists (laughs) on eating fucking bamboo and not fucking so why is it like the wild wildlife fund like logo it's doomed this kind of species does not survive long in the wild you know i'm wondering if there's going to be a time where people will look at that logo and they'll compare it to the um save your file logo and be like what is that (laughs) i mean there's an easy like uh unknown army's objective there that i guess is not australian specific but like um animal conservationists uh, for me like uh my my mum was um heavily involved with that kind of activism when she was young so i see a lot of that sphere here but i know that it's not necessarily a super aussie thing but it's something that it could be covered especially like um the the, the australian green party is could be the, like has a lot of weird stuff within it in terms of people, and I don't know. That's a whole different rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, I, and we don't have time today. <laughs> I don't have much more time. I can do this. Yes, uh, we have. We've managed to find a lot more depth than I expected, actually. Well, how, okay. If we are going to finish up, we've talked about a lot of things today. Is there anything else we want to end on? Any other points of what we've covered today? Um. I had a thing about borders, but it's a bit lectury, so I think I'll just leave it for another time. <laughs> oh, and we didn't go into your Murray River thing either. Yeah, that, that's what I was talking about. It's all to do with state borders and how there's a section of the Murray River that really isn't properly demarcated as belonging to any particular state. 
and the whole thing about how there have been murder cases on the Murray River where it matters, where it, like, if it happens in the Murray River, it determines which state it, get, it is able to be charged in. It's a, it's kind of like one of those, like, so it's a jurisdictional squabble yeah. sort of potential for it, but no one's wanting to take responsibility. It's like, um, wasn't there a whole bunch of series based on, like, a murder on a bridge? Yeah, Brom Broen, The Bridge, and Two Uncanations. I know they did a British remake, and I based on the channel, and I think they were doing an American-Mexican remake. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's not quite like that. Like, mostly it's decided. It's just there's this small, tiny section on the end where, um, because the Victorian-South Australian border is actually slightly west of where it's supposed to be, um, there's a piece of the river that doesn't fall into the Victorian-New South Wales divide. Could the Commonwealth get involved there in terms of policing and such? It's like the federal police get involved? Um, maybe. Maybe it's technically, like, according to the de- declarations of the previous colonial government and post-colonial government, this is the one last piece of true terra nullius in Australia. <laughs> like, there, there are all sorts of UA-relevant significance that you can put on it, but I think it'll be a subject that'll be better for another time. Well, fair enough. It's, it has been... Um, poor old Frank. Poor old Frank. Uh, but he'll survive. I have to let him out of um, the place I've put him soon. <laughs> I found it a very interesting listen. Um so hold on, you put Frank in a place. I, uh, I, I thought I thought we put him down for good. You're telling me there's a chance he can come back? He always comes back. He always comes back. He's like um, he's like Kenny. Oh fuck! I gotta get on a plane. Wait, I can't he, be here when he gets back. He's not in that box out the back, is he? The one that's next to the bathroom. Like I, I peed with door open. That's all right. It's he, he Wait. likes that sort of thing. Oh, did you get him with the old uh, fridge with no uh, no mechanism to open from inside trick? Oh, oh, we're not allowed to talk about fridging anymore. If we talk about <laughs> fridging, we'll be cancelled. Oops, no, the person who complained got cancelled himself. Ha-ha. Anyway. Man, there's probably, a, <laughs> there's probably a ritual in there. Oh, no. Anyway. Uh, like, make people right. stop listening to a particular person through some sort of social media ritual. Well, uh, listen. Uh, do, do you mind if I, if I take some of these these nasal sprays you've left here with me. Um, this is all ketamine, right? This is all ketamine. This is, uh, okay. well, I, th- I think right. it's all ketamine. It's not marked. I, I found them. All right. I've got a yeah. guy, uh, I've got a, I've, I've got a gym in the, uh, in the, at the airport. So I think I should be able to get him, get him they, back. They smell safely. pretty good. They smell pretty, they, they smell good. They smell a bit like lawn clippings.
Thompson. The Australians laughing out there, Thompson. Australians in again. We still have the deposit on this place, Thompson. Fuck. I told myself I wouldn't let him pull that bullshit when he kept me around me again. What was that? <laughs> 